How you guys doing? Everyone doing good? Yeah? So, question. Will anyone raise their hand and admit uh, that you've ever maybe had a doubt about something about God or in the Bible? Anybody? Have you ever doubted? I have. Absolutely. We grow up all the time, and I feel like in Christianity, there's like this unspoken rule that if you're a kid in church, you have to believe everything in the Bible. And if you ever question anything, then you're just as bad as, you know, doubting Thomas in the disciples. It's kind of frowned upon. Like, I don't know if you guys feel that way, but when I was growing up, especially for me, a pastor's kid, it was like, you have to believe it all. And if you ever question anything, then you're not really a good Christian. That's kind of how I felt. Maybe that's how you feel. But here's the problem. So many young people go through church pretending that they believe it when really there's some things that they doubt or they wrestle or they struggle with and they've got questions and they never ask the questions and what happens is those questions when they're unanswered they turn into big doubts and a lot of people end up stop following Jesus in college because they start talking to people who also have doubted and maybe they're a little burned out on church or on Jesus or maybe they just never believed and they think Christians are dumb and they start throwing out a lot of stuff that can be confusing and can lead people away from their faith so I personally think that God's not scared of our questions. Um, I believe the Bible is true. I believe everything about it. But if I were to tell you there haven't been times that I've doubted, I'd be lying to you. Um, I think it's good for us to get all of our questions out on the table and talk about them. So I'm just going to move quickly through some pretty serious questions tonight. And then we'll have the guys get together and we'll talk a little bit. And then the girls will split up and talk a little bit. Um, If I'm saying anything and in the middle you're like, but that doesn't make sense. You can raise your hand and we can keep talking about it, Um, but I tried to think of every possible thing that you'd ask in advance and then come up with a good answer for it. So here's the question for tonight. On Sunday, we did some note cards and we asked people to throw out questions. Here is one of the gnarliest questions that I got. We got two gnarly questions tonight from people. Here's one. Why does God contradict his rules? He tells us not to kill and then he kills billions and he likes it when we kill sinners and our enemies. That is messed up. Can you explain? It's a good question. Definitely. Like, there's a lot. Have you guys noticed? Have you guys ever read Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus? I read Genesis for my devotions recently. There is so much gnarly stuff that happens in Genesis. Like, just weird stuff, depraved stuff, strange stuff. And I was thinking about when I was reading Genesis, I was like, man, if I just got saved, like if someone on the street witnessed to me, And all I heard was that Jesus loved me and he wrote a book and I should check it out. And then I started reading Genesis and got all the way, if I got all the way through Genesis and then to Leviticus, I'd be weirded out. I'd be like, there's a lot of animals dying. There's a lot of like the ground opening up and swallowing people. There's this group called Israel that God picked and they seem chosen and special, but he's having them go around and kill a bunch of other people. It's kind of strange. If you you don't know what I'm talking about, um, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. For one of the gnarliest passages of all time. First Samuel chapter 15. If you have your phones, might be a good place to turn. And let's pray and we'll uh, get into it. First, first Samuel chapter 15. Lord, you are not square, <laughs> squared. Lord, you are not scared of our questions. Lord, you are not afraid of the things that we'd ask. In fact, God, you want us to know you deeper. You want us to know you more. And so, God, you invite the questions. And God, I truly believe that in your word, the answers are found. So I pray tonight as we steady your word, not just in 1 Samuel, but the whole counsel of scripture. God, I pray that you would reveal to us who you are. And if there's anyone here who 
has wrestled with these questions, I, I pray they'd leave encouraged knowing more of your character and who you are. We ask this in your name, amen. All right, so violence in the Old Testament. I got asked to cover a Bible college class uh, and teach it, and the, the guy who was the teacher normally, my father, he was like, hey, I want you to cover 1 Samuel 15. I was like, sweet, Dad. And then I read it, and I was like, oh, no. This chapter is scary. Um, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter with you. I'll, I'll start it out, and then for time's sake, I'll summarize kind of what happens in this chapter. Look at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul. If you guys don't know what that means, um, Samuel was a prophet. Saul was the king of Israel, the very first king of Israel. So Israel is God's people, God's chosen ones, and Samuel is a prophet. Think of it kind of like Gandalf, if you like Lord of the Rings, a wizard of types. He's a prophet. He speaks on God's behalf, walks around with a staff and a big beard. He's the guy who hears from God. He goes to the king and says, here's what God says. So chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, not one, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So... What Saul does is he gathers his forces. If you guys don't understand what's going on in the story, Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and says, all right, Saul, years ago, remember when the Israelites fled Egypt? You guys know that story, right? Those of you guys who grew up in church, uh, Moses parts the Red Sea. So when Moses is running with the children of Israel away from Egypt, there was this evil king, Amalek. And this is some hundred years ago. So the evil king, Amalek, a hundred years ago, comes up behind with his forces and takes a swing at Israel and kills some of their men, kills some of their women, kills some of their children, just takes them out. So now Samuel goes to Saul some hundred years later and says, hey, Saul, remember what happened to us when we fled Egypt? Well, now it's time for revenge. So we're gonna go find King Amalek and we are going to burn his village to the ground. We are going to kill everyone, men, women, children, even nursing babies, and all their pets and animals. So here's what happens in the story. Um, Saul tries to do what Samuel told him to do, but he decides to spare some people. He decides, I'm not gonna kill everybody. I'm gonna let some people live. I'm gonna let some of the animals live. And the king of, uh, King Agog, the king of the Amalekites, I'm gonna take him as a trophy. Um, I'm not gonna kill him. I'm gonna parade him around town so everyone sees what a good king I am and all this stuff. So he takes him back. Look at verse 30. Or no, verse 32. He comes back. Samuel sees that Saul didn't go kill everybody. He let some people live. He let King Agag live. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And King Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Does anyone, does, is anyone like, does, is there anything disturbing about this story to you? Are you disturbed at all by this? Anybody? I, 
I read the whole chapter to a bunch of Bible college students, and I asked them, is there anything disturbing about this story? And they were like, no. I mean, it's in the Bible. Like, why is that disturbing? Like, what's wrong with that? Like, who are you to say something in the Bible is disturbing? So then I said, well, what if we, I said to these Bible college students, what if we made this into a modern scenario? So picture this. You're hanging out in church. You're senior pastor. So for those of you guys who go to Calvary Vista, my dad, uh, your senior pastor, Rob Salvato, goes to the mayor of your town and says, Mr. Mayor, 40 years ago, a gang came into our church and they killed some of the people in our church. So now I want you to get the police, the military, and everyone you can, and we're gonna go to the neighborhood where that gang lived and we're gonna burn that neighborhood to the ground and we're gonna kill everyone, men, women, children, even nursing babies and their pets. And then... <laughs> the mayor kills almost everybody but spares the gang leader because he wants to put him in prison to make an example of him. And then your senior pastor, my dad, grabs a gun and puts the kill shot in the gang leader's head. Now is it disturbing? Yeah, it's like, it's really disturbing. Like, re- like it's stuff like this that for me, growing up, I'd read in the Bible and I'm like, man, this, this is strange. Like, I don't know if you guys saw Star Wars, uh, episode one, um, the evil emperor, what does he say when he's talking about the enemy? He says, wipe them out, all of them. A statement like that, that we don't really expect that to come from a good guy. Usually in a movie, if someone's like, wipe all of them out, we, that's, who is it? Is it a good guy or a villain who usually says that? It's the villain. You guys are so responsive. It's awesome. I know you're with me. But do, do, you, do you guys see the tension in this? For those of us who are Christians, what is, I mean, think of it this way. What does Jesus tell us to do to our enemies? Anybody? Do you know? Jesus says, love your enemies. So in the Old Testament, we have burn them to the ground. And in the New Testament, we have love your enemies. Passages like this cause atheists and skeptics to tear us apart. People will ask, I mean, it's one of the most common claims that skeptics like to make about God is, why is God inconsistent? In the Old Testament, he says, kill everybody. And in the New Testament, he's all about peace and love. Obviously, you Christians don't worship the same God. It, it, has, anyone, has anyone ever thought about this or struggled with this? Anybody? I, yes, I have growing up, absolutely. I think we have to wrestle with this. I think it's a question that we can't just ignore because there's going to be people in your life who are going to bring this up. And for you, you need to understand this. And, and I truly believe there's an answer. I personally have struggled with the violence of the Old Testament. When I was young, my youth pastor taught through uh, Judges and First and Second Samuel, and it was all about battles and war, and I just loved it. I loved the stories of David just destroying Goliath and cutting off his head and all these things. Like they, they, were, they were great to me back then. But now, as I'm an adult and I see really what war looks like, and I watch on the news and I see like what war really does to people and neighborhoods and, and villages, I mean, war is horrific. I remember one time I was talking to a guy who was a soldier, he was a British guy, and I asked him, you know, what his thoughts were, Um, you know, I was like, how was your time in the war? And he looked at me, and he said with this really serious look, he's like, there's no glory in war. He's like, war is hell. Like, there's nothing good about it. He's like, yeah, He, he was obviously scarred by what he went through. But war is all over the New Testament, or war is all over the Old Testament, and we can't just ignore the passages. Many do. Many read the passages and they skip over the violence. They just kind of whitewash it and say it isn't there. I even know some people um, who would teach a passage like this where it's going through um, how Saul didn't 
hack King Agag into pieces. And they, instead of really addressing the violence and the craziness, they're just like, and it's kind of like in your life, you know, you'll, you'll have King Agags, you'll have sins and problems in your life, and you just need to hack those to pieces. Like, that's the application they give. Just hack your King Agags into pieces. And to me, I don't think that gives the passage justice to talk about what's really going on. So I think it's an issue we must address. So there's four questions I'd like to give you guys. I want to respond to these questions with some more questions. It's just going to be a night of questions. One, is this biblical? Is it biblical? Two, is what God did morally right or morally wrong? Three, is what God did consistent with God's character? And three, would God ever ask his followers today to do the same thing, why or why not? Good questions? Yeah, you with me? Okay. Question number one, is it biblical? Now, you guys have been watching those videos with us at camp, The Bible Project, right? You guys know those? Okay. We watch them at church. The Bible Project, I love because it really likes to paint the picture about how the story of the Bible, it's, it's not just a bunch of disconnected stories. Like, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to read Judges today. Let's see what I learned from Judges. Or, you know what, I'm going to go in Genesis. And, and then all of a sudden, you're in the Old Testament. You're like, man, I, I just need some Jesus. I need some encouragement from Jesus because all, all this Old Testament stuff is depressing. So I'm going to jump over to Matthew and get some encouragement. A lot of people read the Bible that way, just jumping around and kind of trying to figure out what's, what lesson can I learn. The story of the Bible is actually one big story. It's all about Jesus. It's all connected. So if you read Judges, Genesis, Leviticus, like everything ties into the story of Jesus. There's three ways we want to read the Bible, guys. One, I believe, is literally. I'm a biblical literalist. And what I mean by that is if God said it, he meant it. If God says something, he always has a meaning behind it. Now, when I say biblical literalist, there are some limits to this, and I want to be careful to make sure you guys understand. So when Jesus is talking to us uh, in the Gospels, and he says, if anyone's eye causes them to sin, pluck it out. If anyone's hand causes them to sin, chop it off. Is that a passage you guys think that maybe Jesus meant for us to interpret literally? Anybody? Do we see a lot of Christians wearing eye patches and having hooks for hands? No. What Jesus, Jesus is using a metaphor. He's saying, if something in your life causes you to sin, get it out of your life. Not your literal eye, but if you're looking at something that you shouldn't, get the thing that you're looking at out of your life. If you're doing something that you shouldn't with your hands, maybe remove yourself from that situation where you're not sinning with your hands or your feet or whatever is causing you to sin. So I believe we read the Bible literally. We're always trying to figure out what is God saying? God doesn't just throw out random statements for fun. He always means something. Another way that we need to read the Bible is Christologically, and that just means simply looking for Jesus. No matter where you're reading, always looking, where is Jesus in the story? Where is he in the timeline? What is going on with Jesus right now? And third, I think we need to read the Bible, not just literally, but literarily. And what I mean by that is just the Bible is a story. Literature. You read it, and it's got a beginning and an end, and there's a storyline going through the whole thing. So, I believe, yes, what God did is biblical in telling them to kill all those people because it's in the Bible. That's the easiest question to answer. Yes, it is biblical because it's right there in the Bible. So now we have to wrestle with more questions. Is what God did morally wrong? How would you guys define morally wrong? Anybody? What's, what, is, what makes something wrong? Anybody? Hmm. What's that? Without justification. Without justification. So doing something with like no purpose, just like if I were to walk up and smack you in the face, that would be wrong because there's no justification for it, right? Okay, that's a good interpretation of wrong. Anybody else? Uh, Leah, what, is, what makes something wrong morally? 
So like for us as a society, sometimes we define how we feel things are right and wrong. Okay. So for us to go set a village on fire, like we would say like, well, this doesn't match up with for us, how we feel people should be treated. Right. Okay. So that's one way of looking at it. Anybody else? Morally wrong. Yeah. Morals come from God. God has written a moral law. So why does the thought of killing a bunch of people in God's name seem morally wrong to us? Well, I think it's because we can trace it back to the morals of God. Like, it seems like God's contradicting his own morals. Look at Exodus 20, verse 13. God says, you shall not kill. He says, you shall not kill. So if that's a moral that God handed down, and he gave it for a reason, the reason God says don't kill is because to God, life is precious. People are his creations, and he cares about every single life. So God tells people, don't kill. Don't murder. Don't take someone's life for no reason. But what about for God to take a life? Does it seem hypocritical that God kills sinners, but he tells us not to sin or not to kill? Here's something you guys need to understand about God. God is perfect. Like, God is not a human. God is not a man. He is completely different than us. He is holy. We talked about holiness a couple Sundays ago. Holiness doesn't mean just that he keeps all the rules and that he's, you know, perfect and has a little halo over his head. Holiness, you can think of kind of like the sun. The sun is different than us. Wouldn't you agree? Like, wouldn't you agree that, like, the sun is different from all the planets in the galaxy? Like, what would happen to a planet if it crashed into the sun? It'd be destroyed. It would be dissolved by the amazing, like, star inferno heat of the sun. The sun is different. It's set apart. It is so unique. And in the same way, God is very different from us. We're very similar to God, but he is holy. He's perfect. He's powerful. He's sinless. He's a creator. He created everything around us. He created you. He created every molecule. And God owes us nothing. God didn't have to make us. God wasn't required to make us. We owe him nothing. Or he, he owes us nothing, but we owe God everything. He created us. Do you guys know why we were created? Anybody? In one word, why were we created? Love. Yes, love. Isn't that amazing that God didn't need us? He's so amazing he could entertain himself for billions and billions of years. He could literally just create things that were so amusing to himself that he'd be amazed forever and ever. But instead he wanted a family. And so he created us for love. And we as humans, starting back to the first humans, Adam and Eve, we rejected his love when we sinned. Now, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? Anybody? I feel like I should stop asking you guys questions because you're not going to respond, so I'll just keep going through it. A wage is what you earn for your work. If you guys came and pulled my weeds and like gathered my leaves, I would give you a wage. I would pay you in nickels and dimes. Um, just kidding, I'd pay you more. But a wage is what you earn for your work. So right there in the Bible, Romans 6, 23, God says the wages, what you earn for your sin is death. Now listen, God is so perfect and he's so unique and he's so much more amazing than us and he's our creator that he has the right to say, hey, listen, I make the rules and so... If you sin, your punishment, your wages, what you've earned for yourself is death. But I think there's even more to it than that. If you view God as an angry giant who throws fireballs at sinners, you're wrong. Because I think even more than God just saying that it's our wages, if you look at Genesis 2.17, what do you see there? In Genesis 2.17, God is speaking to his children, Adam and Eve, the people he created for love. And this is not him 
threatening them. Listen to the verse, Genesis 2.17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, you might read that and read it as God threatening them. You know what I mean? Like, hey, listen, I made this tree. If you touch my tree, I will straight up kill you. I will murder your face off if you touch my tree. That's not what God's saying. See, God knows that that tree is poisonous. He knows that that tree is poisonous in a way that is so much worse than physical, actual rat poison. It is spiritually soul poison. Humans were created in the image of God. We had his nature. We shared in everything with him. And God knows that if they disobey, and he gave them the choice to disobey, he didn't make them disobey. He didn't, God didn't cause sin, but he created an opportunity for them to make their own choice. Because God knows that true love can't happen without choice. And, but God knows. He says, if you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. He knows. He's like, children, it's poison. And if you eat it, you will die. It's not a threat. It's a good father warning his children about poison. And sin is a poison. You guys need to understand that. You need to understand that the death that comes from sin, it's not God saying, I will kill every single one of you that sin because that's what I want to do. No, it's not. God who's trying to kill you for your sin, it's the sin that's killing you. Sin corrupts our nature. Think of it this way. Think of if you build a sandcastle, right? And it's made of sand and it's constructed to last and to stand. If you drop that sandcastle into a bucket of water, what happens to it? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Give me that at least. It'll dissolve, right? It comes apart. For us, when we drop ourselves into sin, Literally, the, the substance, it's not physical molecules, but the substance that makes up our soul begins to dissolve. We begin to destroy ourselves. We begin to die spiritually. And so once Adam and Eve disobeyed, they exposed all of us, the human race, to the, the disease of sin, and it corrupted us. It condemned us. Poison kills. So really, once Adam and Eve sinned, everyone in humanity was already dead. Do you guys get that? Like when Adam and Eve sinned, everyone was dead. Like there was like no chance, no hope. Like it doesn't matter if you're the best person in the world, you're a sinner and you're dead because the substance of your soul has been corrupted. You can't, there's not enough good deeds that you can do to patch the holes in your soul from the sin. So all of humanity was already dead, destined for eternal death and hell. You know, we focus on this life a lot. If you knew, though, that you were going to spend five days in a really nice house, but if you didn't feed your hamster, you'd spend 1,000 years in a dungeon, wouldn't you want to feed the hamster? Right? I would. If, you're not, if you don't understand that analogy, what I'm trying to say is we only focus on this life and not eternity. We're focused on what can I do to make this life awesome when really the amount of time we spend, the 75 years we live on this earth compared to eternity is like five days in a nice house when what really matters is where are we gonna spend eternity? So this is my question. If everyone's already dying, because remember sin corrupts the soul. If everyone's already dying, is it really that cruel for God to speed up the process? No, I'm just, I'm serious. If everyone's already dying, then is it really that cruel for God to speed up the process? You can, you're, can, you can either have a slow death from poison or an instant death from God opening up a cliff and you falling into it, but you're going to die eventually. Do you understand the predicament that the people in the Old Testament were in? They were all headed for death. Now, here's the thing. We need to understand. Death is, it's, it's what we deserve. 
Like, and you might not get that if you've grown up in the church as a Christian kid who's been saved, but you need to understand for humanity, because of our sin, because God is so holy and so great and our sin is so wicked, the tiniest little white lie you've ever told is so wicked, we all deserve death. And if you're a Christian, here's the other thing. If you read these Old Testament stories and you're like, man, why was God so mean? Here's what you need to understand. If you're a Christian, somewhere around like Bible's, big Bible story number two that you learned in children's ministry with the flannel graph, God flooded the entire world and killed everyone but one family. Remember that? We usually only remember the happy animals and the rainbows. But God killed everyone on the planet except Noah and his family. So that's what we deserve. That's what they deserve. That's what we deserve. We need to know, and you might not even think this, but the truth is if God were to drop a meteor on this circle of people right now, he'd have every right to do it because we're sinners. To me, that makes the gospel so much more powerful, knowing that I deserve death, knowing that I deserve the flood, knowing that I deserve the flood just as much as those Old Testament people did. I deserve it. We deserve it. But Jesus gives us another chance. So now we gotta talk about how we get to that chance. How do we get to Jesus in this? Because remember, we read the Bible and we're asking the question, where is who? Jesus. Where is he? Okay. Question number two, or three, I think, is this consistent with God's character? So the skeptic asks, if Jesus and God are supposed to be the same, why is God so violent in the Old Testament but loving in the New? You know, this is how some people view Jesus. What they, they view him as, well, they view God as the angry old man. You guys, you guys know any angry old men? Anybody? Yeah? So God's the angry, like, oh, you darn kids, get off my lawn. I'm gonna throw a lightning bolt. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 dad. You need to chill. You know what? You, you've had a long day. You go rest, I'll take care of it. Like, Jesus is like, I'm, I'm the cool dad. I'm the cool guy. Like, I, you know, forget, forget God, forget Yahweh. I'm gonna take care of this. That, that's not Jesus. Jesus and the Father are the same. That's, did, did you realize that Jesus was involved in the flooding of the world? <laughs> you ever think about that? I used to just think of Yahweh, like Father God, big white beard, mean, just causing rain and lightning and thunder. Jesus and the Holy Spirit were there too. That's the Trinity. They were there also. Is, it, is anyone's mind being blown? <laughs> yeah, it's heavy stuff. So some people think God is the angry dad and Jesus protects us from the angry dad, but it's not the case. Jesus and God are the same in heart, character, and deed throughout the entire Bible. So for the question of how could a loving God command the killing of the Amalekites or the flooding of the whole world, I wanna zoom out and look at the whole story and how we see consistently God's character throughout because context is key. If you were not a Christian and you heard someone talking about a God ordering his followers to kill unbelievers, what's the word you think of? What do you think of? Someone of a different religion and their God says, kill the unbelievers. You think of terrorism. Yeah, you, you think of that. But again, context is key. So if you hear that I mug somebody, to mug someone is to beat them up. If you hear that I mug someone in a dark alleyway, do you think of me as a hero or a villain? Villain, yeah. Aaron, like if you read in the newspaper, Aaron Salvato beat up some dude in an alleyway. And that's the only context you have. I'm a villain. But if you zoom out 
and you get context, because context is key. Say that. Context is key. So if you read the newspaper and Aaron beat up some guy in an alleyway because that guy was trying to destroy his pregnant wife, and my wife is not pregnant, but if she was, am I a hero or, am I a hero or a villain in the story? If I'm trying to, if I beat up a guy to protect my pregnant wife, my hero or villain? My hero. My argument is that God is a hero. Who's the hero in the story of the Bible? Anybody? Jesus, Jesus Yahweh, God. He's the hero. Who, in this illustration, who would the attacker be in the dark alleyway? Anybody? It's... It's the sinners of the world. It's anyone coming against God. And particularly in the Old Testament, it's these other nations that are trying to destroy the pregnant wife. Who's the pregnant wife? Anybody? Israel. Israel. Who's she pregnant with? Jesus. Boom. Okay. Guys, do you realize that in the, do you guys, do you guys realize this? That every time we see crazy violence in the Old Testament, God is protecting Israel from some nation trying to destroy it. And in effect, God is protecting you. You guys realize that? Israel is carrying the seed of Messiah, of Jesus Christ. God knows that Israel has to survive. This is tough because Israel is a bunch of filthy sinners, just like us. They make mistakes. They're like sheep walking off a cliff all the time. Literally, Israel gets themselves into so much trouble. They, they nearly die. They're nearly wiped out. They're nearly destroyed so many times that God is just like, he, he literally, if I were God, I would have abandoned Israel and all of us by association by like the third time that they wandered off into captivity or worshiped other idols. I would just been like, I'm blowing up the earth and I'm starting over at Mars. That's what I would have done. It's probably what you would have done. God wrestles with Israel in love for so many years, keeping them alive, protecting them, not just because Israel is some special nation that God decided to play favorites with. That's, that's how a lot of people view it. It's like, oh, God plays favorites. He picked Israel, they're special. And, you know, the Christians were kind of in second place. No, you need to understand what happened in Genesis chapters one, two, and three. The fall serpent comes up they eat the fruit sin poisons everything and then jesus make or then god yahweh makes a promise he says adam and eve you've blown it but one day i'm gonna send the snake crusher i'm gonna send someone who will defeat the snake and restore everything back to the way it's supposed to be that was the plan right there in the garden god said i've lost my family I've lost my family. He thought of you. You need to know, Genesis, Genesis chapter three, when the fall happens, God's thinking of you. He's thinking of you. He's looking into the future and he sees you. And he says, I've lost them. I've got to get them back. And the story of the Bible is this amazing story about how God risked everything and went through amazing sacrifices and amazing pain to win his family back. It's my favorite story. Are you guys, are you guys with me? Is anyone tracking with me? Does this, is this making sense? Okay. Israel's pregnant with the hope of humanity. Every act that God allowed and commanded served the purpose of protecting Israel and by extension, protecting you. Satan used other nations to try to destroy Israel. If Israel gets wiped out, Messiah, Jesus is never born. 
we have no hope. High stakes. So now next time you read through the Old Testament, like realize every time Israel is under attack, it's not just like, oh no, what's going to happen to King David? It's like, no, what's going to happen to the world? Like grip your Bible in just the epic drama. What's going to happen? I already know, but what's going to happen? God knew that he had to save you and had to keep Israel from harm. God is constantly rescuing Israel. If you zoom out and see the big picture, he's rescuing the world. When God shows up to Abraham, what does he say? What does he say to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations and your seed will bless the world. You guys remember that? Abraham, he look, look up in the stars, Abraham. There's no stars because it's summer yet. Or it's right, you know, in, in the winter we see stars around this time and the fire actually is worth something. Uh, but right now it's summer, so we just have blue skies. But he looked up and he said, Abraham, look at the stars. You will be a father of many nations and your offspring will bless the whole world. So again, Israel. Is Israel considered to bless the whole world right now? No, they hate them. People want to kill them because they're tied with Yahweh. They're tight with Yahweh. People hate Israel. So you can look at that and be like, what did that prophecy mean? Like Israel will bless all the nations. Abraham's family will bless all the nations. I've heard some people teach this and they're like, yes, Israel blesses all the nations because they produce a lot of great fruit and you can buy Israel's fruit in the stores everywhere. And that's what the verse means. I think that's selling that verse way short. (laughs) Honestly, the prophecy is so clearly that one day a descendant of Abraham will bless all of the nations of the world. When Jesus comes, he offers salvation to all the nations of the world. It's fantastic. So question number four, I think. So going back to the killing of the Amalekites, would God ask his followers today to do something like this? Why, why, why or why not? Would God ever ask us to do some Old Testament gnarly, hey, uh, Hope's Anchor, there's a group down the hill. They're gnarly. Uh, go kill them. Go wipe them out. Would God ask us to do this? Anybody? No. Raise your hand if you think he would. Okay, now why? Why wouldn't he? Because if God's the same in the Old Testament, but he's also the same in the New Testament, then why? Why, why this shift? Why the change? Anybody? Please, somebody, give me something. Say it louder. Right. Yes. Israel delivers Jesus into the world and everything changes. What do we say in the script? If Jesus is king... That changes everything. Yes. When Jesus shows up, it changes everything. Listen, here's what you need to know. God never changed. God never changed. Have you guys ever had a plan and you had an end goal in mind, but to get to that plan, you had to do things differently? You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you guys ever had a sport that you were going to play? But in order to play that sport, you had to train. And there were certain foods you couldn't eat and there were certain things you couldn't do. And then you got to the point and then you're like, yes, I can do the sport now. You guys know what I'm talking about? You train for something. So for Jesus, for God, his plan is save people. That's his plan. Love people, save people. Sin needs to be dealt with. That's also part of the plan. Sin needs to be dealt with. Like we can't just, God's not just like, you know what, forget. I'll just turn a blind eye to sin. Who cares about it? No, the plan from the beginning is there's a garden, there's people in it. God loves them. There's family. Sin comes in, corrupts everyone and everything. God says sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be destroyed. And he says the people need to be saved. This is his plan from the beginning. So going through the Old Testament, 
God gets gnarly. Yahweh gets gnarly in this training. He says, Israel, there's things you can't eat. Just like when you're training for the sport, you know? You can't eat the burgers, you gotta eat the lettuce. God says, Israel, you'll die out in the wilderness if you eat pig. Like, it's nasty, it's disgusting, you do not, know, you do not want to know what these pigs eat, so you can't eat the pig. I need you to stay alive, Israel. You're, you're here for a very specific purpose, I need you to stay alive. God's gnarly, I mean, he's gnarly about holiness. He's gnarly about holiness. He says, Israel, you cannot sin. Here's a list of ten commandments. Here's more commandments, here's more commandments. Here's all the things you can't do. Now, was God's ultimate plan for his people to just live in legalisticness? No. God's ultimate plan is for sin to be destroyed so we don't have to worry about it anymore. We're not gonna wake up and go, what commandments do we have to keep? No, God's end game is no need for commandments because when we reach heaven, there's no more sin. He's got an end game. You have to read the Bible realizing every, all this hard stuff, all this difficult stuff, it's not just God's, this bossy jerk who's, you know, here's what you can't do, here's what you can't do. It's all working towards something. Holiness has a price. It's working towards something. God never changed. It wasn't that when Jesus showed up, God was like, you know what? I've been kind of harsh. You know, in the Old Testament, I, you know, I've been kind of mean. I've, I've killed some people. Like, I, you know, I kind of overreacted. Hey, guys, Jesus is here. He's going to take over. No, guys, all that stuff that happened, all the punishments, like, man, God loved Israel and he loved the world. And there's times where he punished Israel gnarly. Like, I was reading the Old Testament. Like, there's some gnarly times he punishes Israel and kills a lot of people. And it's hard to read those because you're like, man, God's so loving. Like, how could he do this? You need to know that he was working towards a plan. And again, what do we deserve? Starts with a D. What do we deserve? Death. We deserve death. So anytime you read the Old Testament and God kills somebody, here's the, here's the problem too. Here's the problem you need to understand. Um, I've heard some people try to explain these verses and um, I've asked them, you know, what, why, did, why did God... Why did God tell Israel to wipe out the Amalekites? Why did God tell Israel to wipe out the Philistines? Why did God tell Israel to just kill all these people? And this is the response I get from people sometimes is, well, you know, they were bad people. And God was just giving them what they deserve. They were really bad. The Ninevites, they were, they were really bad. The Philistines, man, you, you should see what they do. And they'll list off like, man, they did child sacrifices. They killed other people. They, their people were committing adultery, like all this stuff. Here's the crazy thing. If you guys read the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you'll see in the history of Israel's time, they really only had three good kings who followed the Lord. The rest of the time, they were killing people. They were committing child sacrifices. They were committing adultery. They were worshiping idols. They were doing all the same thing that the other people were doing. So I think it's an inaccurate statement to say that the reason that God commanded Israel to destroy those other nations was because Israel were the good guys and those people were the bad guys and they were just getting what they deserve. Here's what I have to wrestle with. Anytime I see the Amalekites or the Philistines or anyone in the Old Testament getting destroyed, I'm not saying, oh yeah, they just got what they deserved. I'm saying they're get, they got what I deserved. Like th- That's what I deserve. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. When, when the Amalekites get wiped out, yes, they're getting what they deserve, but I, they're also getting what I deserved and didn't get thanks to the mercy of God. And that's huge. That'll change how you view everybody. Man, we Christians have such a reputation as viewing people as sinners. Those sinners, those sinners, man, they just, they just need to get what they deserve. No. They're, they're us. There's no us versus them. There's just us. Humanity. Sinful, wicked humanity. We're a part of it. We deserve death, 
We deserve the flood. We deserve the sword. But we've been spared thanks to Jesus Christ. And because of that, how much more should we get out there and share this message with the rest of the world? They need to hear it. God never changed. Do you guys get that? He never changed. His plan was always to save people. They had to get through a really rough patch to get to the point where they could save people. And once Jesus gets on the scene, everything changes. But it wasn't that God changed. It was just he got to the point in his plan where everything changed for good. And that was always his plan. Are you with me? You guys get that? Yeah? Is this confusing or are you guys getting it? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, sweet. Everything was working towards providing sinners with an escape. So here's a few more questions that got thrown out about this as we're wrapping up. One, why does the Old Testament celebrate death? Does God love killing? I think all the stuff we've talked about shows that he doesn't love killing. People are precious to God, even sinners. In fact, all sinners. Like every person that died in the Old Testament was still a precious person to God and God's heart broke. That, not that he killed them, but that their own sin destroyed themselves. He sped up the process sometimes, but God's heart breaks. But in Israel's history, you see times when people celebrate death. Um, David kills Goliath and everyone cheers. David goes out and kills a bunch of Philistines and they sing songs about him. David's killed his 10,000s. David's a warrior. And that's just people rejoicing because their country won in battle. It's just, it's historical. You're reading in the Bible, people are rejoicing. That doesn't mean that God loves death. But God is rejoicing that Israel is okay because remember, Israel is the hope of everybody. So, Another question is, does anyone who kills in the name of God have his blessing? This is a really good question. Because I used, I used to read the Old Testament and think anytime anyone killed anybody and they were an Israelite or they were like a main Bible character like David or just somebody who was like a Bible hero on the flannel graph in children's ministry, like anytime they killed anybody, I thought, well, they're on God's side so they can kill anybody they want and it's approved by God. That's just, that's what I thought. Here's the problem with that. David, man, the first thing I had to teach when I took over high school ministry from Jamie Urbina was uh, we were going through the life of David, and Jamie got to teach all the fun stuff about David, like David killing Goliath, and like David the shepherd boy, and David writing his songs. I came in like right when David went off the deep end, like after he like cheats on his wife and kills this other guy, and then he literally goes on this rampage, and he just, like, I don't know if you guys know, but David went through a period of his life where he joined forces with the enemy. He went to the enemy's team and said, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to be a hitman, a hired gun. And then he goes and he goes to villages and he burns the villages to the ground, kills everybody, takes their stuff. And he, it says that he leaves no survivors because he doesn't want anyone to report back what he's doing. He's hiding it. He's going around just destroying people. David, little shepherd boy David, is going around destroying entire villages God didn't tell him to do it. You can, I searched. I like poured through those verses. So I was like, okay, but like, where's the verse where God said, David, go do this? There's no verse. He's just going around, stealing people's stuff, killing people, burning villages to the ground, and leaving no survivors. God didn't tell David to do that. There were times where God told David and Israel to wipe out other people because they were a threat to Israel, again, a threat to the whole world. Or God decided that he was gonna punish a nation, which they deserve, just like we deserve, but there's times where people kill other people and God 
necessarily doesn't approve it. Um, it's sad. I don't want to get too into it, but you know, if you study history, um, there's stuff about how when the English came over from England to take over this country, America, they used verses in the Bible in the Old Testament about killing the savages to justify wiping out the Indians. And that's people using the Bible in a way that it wasn't meant to be used. God's plan is not for us to use the Bible to justify taking from other people and destroying other people. The plan of the Bible was always to save people and to bring people to God's mercy. So it's a really important thing for us to realize when we read the Old Testament, when God kills somebody, and he does all the time, one, he can do it. He's judge, jury, and executioner. He has the right to kill anybody because we all deserve it, and without him, we're already dead. But man is not judge, jury, and executioner. God is. And so there's specific times in the Bible where God gives man the permission to kind of be like a sword in God's hand, and God uses man as a sword of judgment. But the problem is when we decide to use the Bible and scripture to do those things on our own. We need to think critically about these things. Here's another thing. Um, hmm. I already talked about this. <laughs> well, repetition's good. We're almost done. Is God inconsistent in the Old Testament and New Testament? No. He's always about justice and mercy. Those are the two sides of God you need to pay attention to. God is all about justice. He's all about mercy. That's crazy. Like, it's like being like all about chocolate and all about peanut butter. Actually, that's really good. <laughs> God's always been just. Just is right. God is righteous. Throughout every page of the Bible, God is all about punishing sin, giving people what they deserve, and calling people to holiness. For example, he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. He destroys nations that were living in sin. He allowed people to face consequences for their sin. He punishes Israel, his chosen ones, when they sinned, even letting them be sold into captivity and letting curses fall upon them for their sin. And he gives Israel the standard of holiness, these 10 commandments, and says, live by these. And yet God has always, also always been merciful. He's always been loving people and always trying to rescue people. He gives Adam and Eve the promise of the Messiah. He brings into the picture animal sacrifices. How bad would the people in the Old Testament have it without the animal sacrifices? We watched the video at camp about atonement and what that means. God brings in these animals and says, all right, every, you guys all deserve death, every single one of you. You're already poisoned, you're already dying, but I'm gonna keep you alive through these animal sacrifices. The animals, will, like the, when they die, it's like they're absorbing the punishment for your sin. And you gotta keep doing it, and one day, there's someone coming and you won't have to do this anymore because they'll be the ultimate sacrifice. I'm talking about Jesus. God is merciful because he sends prophets to Israel. If you guys read the Old Testament, it's so depressing. I was just watching another Bible project video about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And the whole book is just Ezra and Nehemiah, these two prophets just like, Israel, repent, turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord. And just, they don't. And it gets so bad that like Ezra is like ripping out his hair and just getting so upset that people aren't following God. It's this, the Bible's this crazy story about people failing and failing and failing and failing, and yet God continues to give them second chances because he loves them. God even sends prophets to wicked nations. You guys remember the story of Jonah? The people in Nineveh, I mean, by our human standards, we'd be like, yeah, like those guys deserve to be destroyed. Like, I mean, I told a lie, but those guys shove spears up through someone where it comes out the top of their face. 
and they line the walls of their city with people who got shoved through spears. They rip off people's skin. They drag people through the streets with their chariots. Like these are terrible people. And God loved them so much that he sends Jonah to preach to them and tell them about Yahweh's forgiveness. Do you guys see how God is not inconsistent, but throughout all of scripture, he is consistently all about justice, punishing sin, taking care of sin, not because God wants to punish people, because he's trying to destroy a cancer that is ruining his world. But if God only wanted to destroy sin, he'd have to destroy all of us because we're infected. And so he's also throughout every page of the Old Testament full of mercy and love. Because remember, God was saying throughout the entire thing, I'm justice, I'm just, so I must deal with the problem of sin. He dealt with it on the cross. That was the ultimate dealing of the problem of sin. When Jesus hung on the cross, he took the punishment for every sin committed from Adam and Eve eating the fruit to even things that haven't been done yet in the future. It's crazy. Guys, the story of the Bible is crazy, crazy awesome. Jesus was the ultimate expression of God's mercy because he kept the commandments when we couldn't. He was the sacrifice when no animal sacrifice was good enough. He was the temple. You guys know about the temple? The temple was the place where people would go to. It's this building where God's presence was. And people were like, yeah, sweet. I can finally go meet with God. Like, that's what my heart longs for. And then they step into the temple and if they had sinned, they'd be struck dead because they weren't holy. And Jesus said, I'm the temple. I'm the ultimate temple. And all you need is to be with me. And even if you're a sinner, even if you messed up today, even if you disrespected your mom, even if you lied, even if you did something gnarly, I love you and I took your punishment and I hung on a cross for you and now I'm the temple where God's presence is and, if, and, and it's not just that I'm in you but you're in me and we're together. Like we carry the presence of God. Do you guys realize that? Oh man, I'm tripping out on this. Like we carry in our hearts the presence of God that used to fill this giant temple and if you walked in and if you were a sinner, you'd be struck dead. That, that presence is now in our hearts. Oh my gosh, God is so good. Holy shnikes, it's so good. So I think I'm gonna stop there. We'll answer more questions next week, but that's in a nutshell why I believe that God is not inconsistent. He's the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He's always been loving us. He's always pursuing us. And now every time you read in the Old Testament and you see something gnarly happen, you realize that that's what should have happened because people deserved it. But you know what? Thank God that it didn't happen to us because we deserved it too. And there's like, we can't read the Old Testament and think, oh, I'm not as bad as the people in this book because we are. We deserve it just as much. But we've been saved by God's grace. I hope you walk away from the study understanding that sin is serious. Like, oh my goodness, so many times in my life I've downplayed sin because I'm a Christian kid and I think of sin kind of as like a little puppy. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, it's kind of cute. You know, I'll get over it one day. I'm still struggling with this. I'm growing. Like sin is not a cute little puppy to be dealt with one day. It's a dog with rabies trying to eat you. Sin is gnarly. And people died because of sin. Thank the Lord that we have Jesus. I hope that you're encouraged to go to God with your sin on a daily basis. Because even though we're forgiven, we still struggle. And we need to realize that people fought and died to get to the point where we are now where we can be forgiven. We need to not take it lightly. If you're struggling with sin tonight, which if you're human, you're probably struggling with something, I encourage you, ask for prayer, talk to your small group leader, go home, talk to the Lord, 
If your guy texts me or Brooke, if your girl texts Brooklyn, if texts a counselor and just say, hey, I'm dealing with sin. Here it is. I know it's hard. I know it's wrong. I need help. Pray for me. And experience the freedom that comes from the Lord. No one here should be struggling with sin and not getting help for it. Like, it's serious. We have so much freedom and forgiveness now. Let's not take it lightly. And because we've been given life, let's do something with it. Let's spread the gospel. Let's spread the good news. Let's show people who this great God we serve is. The God who fought tooth and nail from the first page of the Bible to the future for our souls. He fought for us and he won. we're, We're living in the time of history where we have so much mercy that we are able to experience, more mercy than anyone has ever been able to experience ever in the Old Testament. Like, thank the Lord for that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much that you're not a moral monster who one minute bipolarly wants to kill somebody and then the next minute wants to go give someone else a hug. God, you're not inconsistent, loving someone one minute and hating someone the next. God, from the beginning, you've always hated sin and you've always loved us. And Lord, it breaks my heart to know that the earth had to be flooded to get where we are, that people had to die in the Old Testament. But God, I know that you're just. I know that you're wise. I know that you made the right decision. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that you spared me when I could have been born in those times of the Old Testament and I could have gotten exactly what I deserved, death. And in your mercy, God, you allowed me to be born in 1989 into the house of a pastor and to hear about Jesus at a very young age and to be exposed to the gospel. God, your mercy is amazing. God, we deserve death and yet you've given us life. Help us not to waste it. Help us, Lord, to walk in your life and in your love, honoring you, trusting you. If there's anyone here, Lord, who still doubts, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to find the truth. Stir them to ask questions and just bless us as we go into these times of further conversation. In your name, amen.